I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We are here. You are here. Everyone is here. So let's do this. We are rounding out our month on Sky Crimes by examining what is perhaps one of the most famous Sky Crimes, if not one of the most famous or infamous unsolved crimes of the last 50 years. Even the FBI has referred to it as the greatest unsolved mystery in the history of the Bureau. And if they're saying that, you know it's a big deal. Mm. Uh, today, we are talking about one of my personal favorite crimes ever. Um, the hijacking of Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, or Norjack, or as you may know it, the story of D.B. Cooper. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot here, so we should just do it. Yeah. So, Thanksgiving, the fourth Thursday of November, is a day to spend with your loved ones. Eat your weight in turkey and pies, potatoes, day drink. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of like those of us who are not American. That's what we are led to believe Thanksgiving is all about. But for one man, passing out in a turkey-flavoured food coma was not on his to-do list for Thanksgiving 1971. No. On the afternoon of Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, Thanksgiving Eve, a man named Dan Cooper purchased a one-way ticket in cash for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 from Portland International Airport to SeaTac International Airport in Seattle. Now, for those of us who grew up in a post-9-11 world, the idea that you could just rock up at an airport, buy a ticket in cash, and board a plane without showing ID or going through like that anxiety-inducing <laughs> security screening process that seemingly makes all of us panic that we've accidentally like packed, I don't know, liquid sarin gas or a machete or a homemade pipe bomb in our hand luggage. It seems insane. Yeah. Because for most of us, like 30 and under, 35 and under maybe, that's what we've grown up around. Like we were we were 10 when 9/11 happened. Yeah. So, I'd never been I never went on a plane till I was 15. Yeah. So and they were just starting to relax security a bit mm -hmm. then from what it was immediately after 9/11. Yeah. So the idea that you can just walk, like just just turn up at the airport, just like yeah, it's like it was like twenty dollars. Yeah. Waddle on. Nobody looked in his briefcase, or anything like that. Nobody, you know, didn't have to take his belt and his sunglasses and everything off. Just walked straight on. <laughs> um, That's exactly how you did it back then. It is. You know, my dad used to fly a lot for work for decades, like through. 60s and 70s and but he he got to the point where he was traveling so much that like he would regularly call the airport and say things like hey guys i'm running late hold the plane for me and they <laughs> fucking did wow like i like that's the that's like how different it was and that would have been in like the 80s so yeah and like even when i because i flew a lot 
pre 9-11 as a kid, like you still had to go through security as in like metal detectors, you know, take your Mm. coins out of your pockets kind of thing. But it was never that intensive. And like you could go to the gates without a ticket. Um, Yeah, that always amuses me when you watch like... um like old oh, sitcoms like from the 90s and stuff where they're yeah where they're like running to the gate and i'm like how did you get there yeah yeah <laughs> or, or they're right meeting in. someone off the plane at the gate and i'm like how yeah i used to do that all the time it's a different world yeah so the boeing 727 100 or perhaps airplane people would correct me and say that that should be said, the Boeing 727-100 or 100. I don't know plane language. It, it was a plane. It took off. It departed on time, in fact, for the short flight to Seattle. Although sources vary on what time on time actually was. But basically, it was sometime between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. So Cooper was one of 36 passengers along with the small uh, airline crew. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper ordered a bourbon and soda and then handed a note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner. But but Schaffner just put the note in her pocket without reading it. But after seeing Schaffner put the piece of paper in her pocket, Cooper leaned closer to her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. So this is quite an important distinction to make. So according to all the sources we use, he just kind of whispered it to her. Like, I have a, look at that note, I have a bomb, sit down. Not screaming along the aisle, miss, I have a bomb. Which, some podcasts and YouTubers seem to go down that route. What? No. (laughs) I have not read that anywhere else. No, that's definitely not what happened because, like, because the passengers weren't aware of what was going on. No. So I think they would have noticed that. Yeah. We're not sure. Slash nobody really knows exactly what the note said because Cooper later took it back. But uh, we know that after telling Schaffner about the bomb, Cooper insisted that she sit beside him. After sitting down, Schaffner asked to see the bomb and Cooper briefly opened his black attache case the only possession he had taken on board with him, just long enough for her to glimpse the eight red cylinders inside, uh, believed to be dynamite, attached to a battery via a set of wires. So, it's pretty pretty bomb-like, although that is very, like, cartoon bomb. Yeah, so... So who knows? But you wouldn't take that risk, would you? No, not in an airplane. Definitely not. So, after showing Schaffner the bomb, Cooper explained how it would work and then made his demands. $200,000 in cash, which is worth about $1.4 million today, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by ready to refuel when they landed at SeaTac. He also is reported to have said, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. Because it's the 70s, eh? Yeah. (laughs) It was at 71, right? Yeah. 
Schaffner relayed these demands to Captain William A. Scott, who contacted air traffic control, who then in turn contacted local and federal authorities. Quickly, the ransom payment was authorized, and the airline instructed staff to comply with Cooper's demands. Passengers were told that their arrival at SeaTac would be delayed, and the plane circled the Puget Sound for two hours while the FBI gathered and photographed the ransom money from a number of banks in Seattle. Now, the bills weren't marked, but their serial numbers were recorded, and that will become important later. Yeah. More than two hours late, the plane finally landed in Seattle. Which is quite a long time to be circling <laughs> Seattle when the Portland to Seattle flight is like less than an hour. It's 50 some minutes. Yeah. You could just go back and forth. Like, if that's like flying from like Newcastle to Amsterdam or Dublin or London, like, if I was on one of those flights and I was like circling around for two hours, I'd be like, why yeah 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 just just why like you say you could go back and come back again yeah it was too like so cooper had instructed the crew to close all the window blinds to discourage the feds from having snipers trying to shoot him because they did have snipers there on the tarmac in case the opportunity arose <laughs> uh al lee who was the airline seattle operations manager delivered the backpack filled with the ransom money to the runway, along with the four parachutes. And flight attendant Tina Mucklow collected the money and parachutes and then went back on board to give to Cooper. And once Cooper had them all, he allowed the passengers and some of the crew, including uh, flight attendant Florence Schaffner, to deplane. Because I think when they landed, they were told it was a mechanical issue mm -hmm. as to why they couldn't yet deplane. Mm -hmm. And while the plane was being refueled, which took longer than Cooper anticipated and began to irritate him, he outlined the flight plan to the crew still on board. The plane was to head for Mexico City, but Cooper had some conditions for the flight. Now, according to the Wikipedia page on D.B. Cooper, he said the plane had to travel as slow as possible without stalling, which is about 115 miles an hour, 185 kilometers, at a maximum of 10,000 feet, the landing gear was to remain deployed. Once in the air, they couldn't lift it. The wing flaps were to be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin was to remain unpressurized. The wing flaps I have no understanding of, so, you know. I think it, they produce dra and drag to, right it just slows yeah, it down it's all to do with balance and things like yeah. that like they can adjust them for like turbulence or yeah. clouds and things but so it's someone who actually knows something about yeah yeah clearly this isn't planes. his first time on an on an airplane and he probably yeah. has some experience with them uh he also demanded that the air stair remain extended with the rear exit door open but the airline refused as it was too dangerous so the crew showed Cooper how to operate it before they took off again. Unfortunately, there was a problem. Uh, the plane's range was only about a thousand miles, and it would not make it to Mexico without stopping to refuel. So eventually, the Reno-Tahoe International Airport was agreed on as a suitable refueling stop. Just after 7.40 p.m., the plane took off from SeaTac with Cooper and a four-person crew of uh, Captain William A. Scott, 
First Officer William J. Radizak, uh, Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson, and Flight Attendant Tina Mucklow. After takeoff, Cooper instructed Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit. Then at around 8 p.m., warning lights flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the air stair had been activated. The pilot used the intercom to ask if Cooper needed assistance, but he replied no. And this was the last time that anyone spoke to Cooper. Unbeknownst to Cooper, the plane was being tailed by two F-106 fighter jets, one above and one below the Boeing 727, out of view of the plane's crew and Cooper, and a Lockheed T-33, all of which had been diverted from unrelated training missions. Uh, But all three military planes had to turn back at the Oregon border due to low fuel levels. So, the plane landed at Reno Tahoe at around 10.15 p.m., and was immediately surrounded by both law enforcement, by both local law enforcement and FBI officials. There was no sign of Cooper on board, and officials were confident that he could not have escaped after the plane landed without anyone on the ground seeing him. So a half-hour sweep of the plane was conducted. Cooper, the money, the briefcase, the bomb, and two of the parachutes had all gone. But they did find 65 unidentified fingerprints and Cooper's clip-on tie was also found because all villains know you gotta you gotta just have a clip-on yeah. to get rid of quickly. Yeah, obviously. And one of the two parachutes uh, that was still on board had been opened. So the crew were all interviewed that evening and composite sketches were developed from Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner's almost identical descriptions. Now, according to BuzzFeed, these sketches were believed to be incredibly accurate. We'll get to that later as well. (laughs) And the most accurate of all the descriptions of Cooper, as, you know, he spent quite a long time with each of them during the the two flights and while on the ground at Mm SeaTac, compared to description from the other members of the crew and from fellow passengers who, you know, didn't actually know anything had happened till they deplaned and the feds met them like, oh, so your plane was just hijacked. Yeah, right? Surprise. Mm. But the two flight attendants described Cooper as being in his mid-40s, around 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall, weighing about 180 pounds, with piercing brown eyes. He was wearing a black suit with a white shirt, loafers and sunglasses. They also both described him as calm and polite, and not like many of the stereotypes of hijackers at that time, which were usually like the hardened criminals or political dissidents heading for Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mucklow had actually asked Cooper if he had a grudge against Northwest Orient Airlines, to which he replied, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Mm. Interesting. Duh. That is interesting. Uh, So the sketches and description were circulated quickly as police began tracking down potential suspects. One of the first suspects was an Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor criminal record, and the police contacted him on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias uh, as his previous crimes. 
The name was cleared, but a local reporter had accidentally mixed up the names of the hijacker and this initial suspect. And this mistake was then repeated by a reporter from uh, Wire Service United Press Agency, which is why we now know the hijacker as D.B. Cooper rather than Dan Cooper. Yeah, I think D.B. sounds a lot cooler than Dan. Yeah, like... Like, if it was Dan Cooper, I don't think people would get as excited about this as they do. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's very, like, it adds to the the myth in a way. Now, because the crew were all in the cockpit and the diverted military planes had had to land due to fuel shortages, nobody was sure exactly when Cooper jumped from the plane. And even if he had jumped while the military planes were still trailing the Boeing, the limited visibility of the cloudy night sky meant that it was possible for someone to jump without being seen. Uh, The crew had reported a sudden upward motion that required intervention from the pilot to correct shortly after 8 p.m. when the air stairs were lowered. Now, it's possible that this was Cooper jumping, but it's also possible that this was just normal air disturbance that, you know, you experience on all flights. Also, the stairs were open, so that's going to make it more of a bumpy ride. Yeah, definitely. But when authorities carried out a recreation of the flight from SeaTac to Reno Tahoe, they pushed a sled weighing about 200 pounds out of an open air stair, and this resulted in a similar upward motion and brief change in pressure that the crew had experienced at around like 8.15. This gave investigators a rough search area around southwest Washington, northwest Oregon, which is also the area where the military planes had to turn back to avoid running out of fuel in midair, which is not good. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Now, the pilots of the military planes did not see anyone jump nor did they detect a parachute on their radar. But it is possible that a person dressed all in black could jump without being seen, and if they didn't open the parachute until as late as possible, they could have literally flown under the radar and avoided detection. And it is also worth noting that although Mexico City was the final destination and Reno Tahoe was agreed upon as a refueling stop, Cooper had no input on the actual flight path, and the route was chosen by the flight crew, meaning that Cooper didn't demand the plane take a particular path so that he could like coordinate his jump with accomplices waiting for him on the ground. Yeah. When they did the recreation and they shoved this 200-pound sled out of a plane just out into the open, like... I hope the sled had a parachute because otherwise that's <laughs> dangerous. Like I know you're over that's the like woods. like a mini crater. <laughs> but like you're dropping mm. a fucking projectile out of a plane <laughs> just yeah. onto the unsuspecting ground. Yeah. So basically it sounds like either he was confident enough that he could from anywhere along that route, he could. Yeah you know, make his escape or potentially he wasn't interested in surviving the jump. Yeah. And I think, I believe it was was this case where all the other planes in the area were told, 
avoid they obviously they avoid each other to a certain yeah. extent but get well out of this plane's flight path yeah. don't look at it don't <laughs> don't watch it don't just stay as far away from it as possible yeah. unless he had like Many people stationed all along <laughs> that would be the route like between SeaTac and Mexico City. That would be like a world record for number of accomplices. <laughs> they, yeah, like so one of those hands of a- across the world, like chains of people just waiting for him to make mm. his his jump. That's what I'm picturing. Yeah, so despite extensive searches along the flight path between Seattle and Reno, involving ground and air assets from local, state and federal law enforcement, as well as local branches of the National Guard, no sign of Cooper, his parachute, or his briefcase bomb were ever found. So, this is something that I've never really thought about before. But he supposedly jumped with this bomb. So, like, you'd have to have a good grip on it. You'd either have to have a good grip on it, you'd either have, or know that it was fake, or be confident that you could, like, fling it away from you as you fell through the air and it would land far enough away that it wouldn't fucking blow you up. Like, I never thought about it. It's very disconnected. Yeah. Like, yeah, I never really thought about that either. But that just adds a whole nother layer to it. Cause I feel like I always forget about the bomb by the time they've like mm. landed and taken off again and he's asked for the parachutes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. Disappeared without a trace. But they did find something. They found mm-hmm. some of the money. So serial numbers for the bills were released to the public. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of whatever recovered money people found, up to $25,000. And numerous media outlets also offered rewards to anyone who could turn in one of the bills. Although there was at least one attempt to turn in counterfeit bills and collect the reward money, nobody ever turned in the money actually paid out in the hijacking. However... In February 1980, a family who were vacationing on the Columbia River in southern Washington found three packets of cash on a beach known as Tina Bar, which was about 20 miles away from the community of Ariel, which was one of the places investigators suspected Cooper could have landed had he jumped when the crew felt the sudden upward movement and change in cabin pressure. Uh, These three packets contained... Uh, almost $6,000, but the money had deteriorated and begun to rot due to the nine years exposure in a damp environment. Further examination of the bills revealed that they had been in the river and deposited on the riverbank by river movement rather than intentionally placed there or dropped there from the air, bringing up more questions than answers. Uh, This has led some to believe that Cooper may have landed in the Washougal Valley or around the Washougal River, which flows into the Columbia River, not too far away from Tina Bar, where the money was found. But the valley has been extensively searched numerous times with no sign of Cooper or his parachute. Wasn't it something like a little 10-year-old kid found this money? Yeah, they were were looking for like firewood to to build a barbecue or something on this little beach. Can, uh, river beach. Just like 
That's a pretty... Yes, we found all this money. Oh, it's rotting and it was used in a hijacking. It's rotting and it's ill-begotten. <laughs> I, I do think it's it's incredible that they can work out from the state of it and how it's positioned, mm -hmm. like how it's come to be there. Yeah. Like that it's been moved like that it's been moved by the river rather than being dropped there and it's probably flowed from the Washugal into the Columbia. Yeah. I just think that's incredible. Yeah. That like science like we know science is amazing and can do amazing things, but to to like just know that you can work out where something entered a river and how it moved, I think is is really impressive. Yeah, super interesting. Uh so despite the fingerprints recovered from the plane and a partial DNA profile recovered from the clip-on tie that was left on the plane before he jumped, Dan, or D.B. Cooper, has never been identified. So initially, the crime Cooper was to be charged with was hijacking, or air piracy as it's also known, but that had a five-year statute of limitation. So in November 1976, as the five-year limit rapidly approached, a grand jury was convened and John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, was indicted in absentia for violating the Hobbs Act. Mm -hmm. Now, the Hobbs Act is a federal statute criminalising robbery and extortion, which has no statute of limitation. No doubt the reason, or in part... The reason that it was chosen. Yeah. As what he was indicted for. Can you imagine if, like, they just let that run out, that clock run out? Mm. I wonder if we would know who he was at that at that point. Because there would be no... Yeah, maybe. There'd be no consequence for it. Um. So, the FBI continued to investigate and attempt to identify Cooper for almost 45 years before closing the case in July 2016, citing the need to refocus resources on more urgent priorities. I remember when this happened, I was like, no, they can't close it. But also, yeah. it's been long enough. However, they will continue to investigate if they receive credible new information and evidence. Which... Like, yeah, I get why people are pissed if they, they close a case like that, but also after 45 years, there's no money being recovered. There's no trace. Even the parachute. Yeah. Like, okay, if he just rocketed to the ground, <laughs> yes, he would die. His body could be scavenged by animals. Even the bones could all have been taken away mm -hmm. and, you know, separated by animal scavenging. That parachute, or at least something of it should have been found yeah so if they haven't found that after 45 years i think it's like there are definitely more urgent things going on now that they need to spend their money and time yeah. on yeah but during the 45 year long investigation more than 1000 suspects were investigated and eliminated along with a number of hoaxes two of the most well-known hoaxes were donald murphy and william lewis who in November 1972 impersonated Cooper in order to sell a tell-all story to the media. Uh, they were both arrested and charged with extortion. Fair. Fair enough. There were also a number of deathbed confessions for men who claimed to be D.B. Cooper or to know something about the case, but then 
died before giving any more information. One of these deathbed confessions came from Dwayne L. Weber, who three days before his death in 1995 said to his wife, Joe, I am Dan Cooper. At the time, she didn't realize the significance of his confession, but in the months following his death, she told a friend about the confession and they explained to her who Dan Cooper was. So Joe went to a local library to research the case where she found a book on the case with her husband's writing in the margins. That is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's wild. Um, I also wonder if, like, because he said, I am Dan Cooper. Uh -huh. I wonder if that's why she didn't realize at the time. Yeah. Like, because it's just become known as D.B. Cooper. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, I think probably only people who actually spent time actively, like, reading about the case or hearing about the case in some way mm. would probably... Because it was still, even after it was realized that, like, that was the wrong name, it still stuck. Yeah. And uh, and also it depends, like, what he was dying from. Because if he had, like, say, Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia, mm -hmm. she could have just thought it was... Yeah, just random. Just just the ramblings of, of someone who was literally losing their grip on reality. Yeah. So, yeah, so she found this book about the case. He had made some notes in the margins. Um, he also had the criminal background the FBI believed that Cooper had, having served six prison sentences for burglary and forgery between 1945 and 1968. And he was a bourbon drinker. Um, I think every suspect said, like, he was a bourbon drinker. Yeah. Like, I take... <laughs> issue with that because it was the 70s late 60s 70s like what white man in america wasn't a bourbon drinker and a chain smoker like that <laughs> yeah. was literally everybody so i i, I kind of discount that part of it. it's like oh well he drank the same drink drink but like Right, so his wife Joe also recalled the couple took a trip in 1979 to Seattle and then the Columbia River in southern Washington state, just a few miles from where the money was eventually found on Tina Bar Beach. However, interesting. It is very interesting. Uh, however, Weber was eliminated by the FBI in 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any recovered from the plane nor did his DNA match the partial profile recovered from the clip-on tie left on board when Cooper jumped. Now, obviously, we cannot look at all of the suspects because, as we said before, over a thousand of them have been cleared. <laughs> I think there was about 25 on the list who haven't been cleared. Yeah. We don't even have time to do all them. But we've rounded up a few of the names and faces favoured by... Law enforcement, armchair detectives, and of course ourselves. <laughs> so uh, let's take a look. Yes. Okay. So one of the more popular suspects is Robert Rackstraw, a Vietnam vet who was a paratrooper, pilot, and explosive expert. It's a triple threat. 
Mm. He first came to the attention of the FBI in 1978 when he was extradited from Iran back to the U.S. on charges of check kiting and possession of explosives. While on bail, he tried to fake his own death by making a false mayday call while flying a rented plane over Monterey Bay in California and claiming that he was bailing out. And this is my favorite part. The plane was later found repainted in a nearby hangar. <laughs> and Rackstraw was rearrested um, and forging a pilot's license was added to the list of offenses he was to stand trial for. <laughs> I, I I love I just that. love it. It's just like just gave it a new paint job and parked it up. Mm. Uh, like yeah, yeah. Because they don't have like numbers engraved yeah. like cars, you yeah. know, onto the chassis and in the engine covers and you know things that people would scrape off if they were trying to do an actual good job. Of this. Yeah, you know, it's it's fine. Um. So the FBI noted the similarities between Rackstraw and the profile they had initially created of Cooper, including criminal background, military parachute training, um, as well as similarities between him and the composite sketches of Cooper. But the following year, he was eliminated as a suspect when there was no actual direct evidence pointing towards him, only circumstantial evidence. Also, the flight attendants did not identify him as Cooper. And he was only 28 at the time, uh, whereas the flight crew believed that Cooper was in his 40s. Um, people seemed to forget about Rackstraw for more than 40 years. But in 2016, his name came up again when a documentary was aired and a book was released, both listing him as the only suspect in the D.B. Cooper case. Whoever did those sort of missed uh, 999 other folks didn't they mm. yes and that was a thomas colbert who uh, in 2017 along with a group of volunteers found what they believed to be part of cooper's parachute strap at an undisclosed location in the pacific northwest oh, sure. like that's that's not a good like you need to disclose your locations <laughs> And later, they uncovered a piece of foam believed to be part of the parachute backpack, also found in an undisclosed Pacific Northwest location. Yeah. Yeah, not buying it. Cobert also claims to have a letter from Rackstraw where he confesses to being Cooper. This letter was supposedly written using code, which <laughs> Rackstraw would have used in Vietnam, and was cracked by one of Cobert's volunteers, who was also a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but not everyone is convinced. Uh, my, me, if you can't tell. <laughs> I, I think Taylor's not convinced either. No, not... not just, just from the faces you're making. I'm not convinced by this quote-unquote recent evidence like the the initial yeah. like matchups of him is kind of convincing although he does seem like he's too young but if he lived a hard yeah. life like a lot of people did back in the day then maybe he looked older yeah and also when you look at people from like the 60s and 70s like oh they were in their 30s and i'm like were they they look like they're in their yeah, 50s yeah like i think people don't people we people seem to age differently i don't mean just in terms of like uh, cosmetic surgery and 
fake like anti wrinkle creams and things. I just think like I just think people look different yeah, now. Yeah, no. At like certain ages to like say like fifty years ago. Absolutely. So yeah, according to an article by All That's Interesting, which is linked below in the show notes. Cobert claims he has embarrassed the FBI by managing to solve the D.B. Cooper case with his group of amateur investigator sleuths, mm. while the FBI agents had been unable to for, you know, 45 years. And now there is a high-level cover-up to save face. Obviously. I mean, they eliminated him, like, nearly 40 years earlier, so yeah. I think that's got more to do with yeah, it. Yeah, that's possible. Maybe? Uh, Rackstraw denied Corbett's claims, although he had been happy previously for people to think that just maybe he could have been D.B. Cooper, dancing around questions and suggestions that he could have been the hijacker. Can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> but following Corbett's book, he said he lost his boat repair business because people didn't want to go to him because they thought he was a hijacker. Yeah. And, you know, a literal domestic terrorist. Yeah. And uh, he died of heart disease in July uh, 2019, in his mid-70s. Okay, so another and quite recently named suspect, um, and this one is my sort of long-held favorite, is Kenneth Christensen, whose own brother Lyle became convinced that Kenneth was... Cooper after seeing a rerun of the Unsolved Mysteries episode about D.B. Cooper. And the link to that episode the, uh, on YouTube is in the show notes as well, if you want to check that out. There's a few interesting things on that mm -hmm. episode. Yeah. Um, so his brother Kenneth had died in 1994, and on his deathbed had said, there is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Lyle and then he died. <laughs> and didn't tell him. Um, Lyle became convinced that this partial confession was related to the D.B. Cooper case. But the FBI weren't interested, and neither were a number of filmmakers and authors that Lyle contacted in the hopes that they would be interested in the film or book possibilities of the story. Uh, eventually, he hired P.I. Skip Porteous, who in 2010, published a book about his investigation. So Kenneth Christensen had been a flight attendant and a flight purser for Northwest Orient, but he had previously been a plane mechanic and he had the military background that law enforcement thought D.B. Cooper would have had, having served as a paratrooper during the Second World War. Uh, Christensen was 45 at the time of the hijacking. Uh, he smoked and drank bourbon, as Cooper did, although he was shorter and thinner than the hijacker, as described by the flight attendants. Um, Florence Schaffner has reportedly said that Christensen matched her memory of Cooper more closely than any of the other suspects whose photos she had looked at, but she couldn't conclusively say yes or no. Interestingly, in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, which originally aired in 1988, um, that covers D.B. Cooper, Florence Schaffner said that the famous sketch 
of D.B. Cooper, which was widely believed to be incredibly accurate, yeah. is not actually that accurate. <laughs> which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and also we've talked before about the accuracy of of ske- like composite sketches and, and things like that, and people being like, oh, it looks just like him. I don't see it. Does it really? Yeah. Um, but anyway, the FBI did not consider Christensen a prime suspect, despite Schaffner saying that he more closely matched the hijacker than anyone else's photo that she had been shown. Yeah. The, and they cited a lack of direct evidence linking Christensen and also said he did not match eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Despite Florence Schaffner saying that he uh, did, yeah, it look, looks it looks a lot like him, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. So anyway, also by 2010, the FBI had significantly rewritten their criminal profile of Cooper, and whilst it was believed he had some kind of military parachute training, they did not believe him to be as experienced or skilled a jumper as they had done in the 70s. And Christian had what's been described as a level of skydiving experience above that predicted by the profile. Yeah, which is interesting that they have they sort of re, rewrote that profile over time. See, I think Christensen is interesting because he worked for Northwest Orient. And like, mm. he had been a flight attendant he'd been a purser so like he would have been very familiar with their planes with their fleet with their sort of like systems of operation and processes and flight schedules and all this stuff Mm. and like and i kind of remember reading somewhere along the way that like he had been fired by the company or something i think and oh, so, I maybe missed that. Uh, I don't know if that's right, but it uh, just seems kind of <laughs> somewhere in the dredges of my brain. Mm. But like, but the only thing is then when he was asked, do you have a grudge against Northwest Orient? He's like, no. But also, are we taking the word of a, a hijacker? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It depends how much weight you want to put on on that claim because because if he said yes they that gives them a massive head start yeah like who has a grudge that couldn't be settled in any (laughs) other way than literally hijacking a plane like there will be some paper trail of who has that kind of grievance yeah absolutely Mm. so yeah but yeah just the fact that he's a flight attendant he was a paratrooper and he was familiar with the airline at the time really stands out to me so he's he's a possible he's my pick mm-hmm. yeah it's your um pick. now the final suspect that we're going to look at who is favored by some former fbi agents and many armchair detectives including cat yeah <laughs> um This one is Richard McCoy Jr. So, Richard McCoy 
was a Vietnam veteran who served two tours with the U.S. Army, the first as an explosives expert and the second as a helicopter pilot, and he was also an avid skydiver. Okay, three. Three checks right there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it wasn't his military record that brought him to the attention of the feds. It was, in fact, the hijacking of another Boeing 727 less than five months after Cooper hijacked Flight 305. On April 7th, 1972, United Airlines Flight 855 from Newark to LAX landed in Denver for a scheduled stopover. Where, And this is where McCoy boarded the plane using the alias James Johnson. Once the plane was up in the air, McCoy hijacked the plane, but rather than a bomb, like what was used in the Cooper case, used an unloaded handgun and a novelty paperweight that looked like a hand grenade. Sure. Um, He demanded $500,000 in cash and four parachutes, which were delivered to him after the plane landed at San Francisco International Airport. Once the plane was back in the air, we're not exactly sure where it was heading for, um, because McCoy had ordered the pilot to fly east in a zigzag pattern. Uh, There's also a lot less information yeah. about this hijacking yeah. as there is about uh, Northwest Orient. So makes sense. Not not in as much yeah. detail. Um, but once we no, I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> once they were in the air and flying over Provo, Utah, McCoy jumped from the air stairs. But there was kind of a problem mccoy had left his fingerprints on the magazine he had been reading and on the note that he had handed to the flight attendant and he was arrested um two days later after a tip-off from a motorist who had picked up mccoy hitchhiking while wearing a jumpsuit Uh, so whoops yeah so mccoy always professed his innocence but was found guilty of air piracy and sentenced to 45 years in prison. There were a number of similarities between the two hijackings. Both Cooper and McCoy hijacked and parachuted out of a Boeing 727. They both requested four parachutes, along with large sums of money they were extorting, used notes to alert flight attendants to their weapons, and they remained fairly calm throughout the entire hijacking. Now, according to BuzzFeed, both notes also contained the phrase, no funny stuff. Hmm. Which, just very 70s. Yeah. Or just very old and timey. (laughs) Before our time. Now, despite these similarities, the FBI ruled him out, citing, citing? (laughs) citing a lack of resemblance to the sketch of D.B. Cooper, and there being credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas and then back home with his family in Utah for Thanksgiving the following day. Now, two years into his 45-year sentence, in August 1974, McCoy and three accomplices commandeered a garbage truck and escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. 
two of the group, Joseph Havel and Larry Bagley. Bagley? Bagley? Bagley. And Larry Bagley were recaptured three days later. But McCoy and the fourth member of the group, Melvin Walker, remained on the run for three months. When FBI, when the FBI finally tracked them down in Virginia Beach, McCoy was shot dead in a shootout with agents. Walker escaped, but was recaptured after a short car chase. Now, the FBI agent who shot and killed McCoy reportedly said, allegedly said, we don't know how true <laughs> this is, I couldn't actually find yeah. his name either. When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. Ooh. Mm. Um, so, parole officer Bernie Rhodes um, and former FBI agent Russell Kalame favored the theory of McCoy as Cooper and in 1991 published a book called, this is great, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. I mean... As books go, that is a very That's good a really title. good name. I feel like I should insert like a sound effect in there. Like, but okay. so as well as the similarities that we've already talked about, they include in this book claims from McCoy's family that the clip on tie and pearl tie clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy. Um, like Rackstraw. McCoy did not admit nor deny being Cooper and seemed okay with people believing believing either option. McCoy's widow Karen sued Rhodes, Calame, and her former lawyer and sought an injunction to prevent further publication and distribution of the book, citing that she and her involvement in the hijackings had been misrepresented. Um, but during the court proceedings, it became known that Karen McCoy was deeply involved in the United Airlines hijacking. The injunction against further publishing and distribution was denied, but a conditional injunction against the sale of the film rights to the book was granted. She was awarded undisclosed settlements from the authors, $20,000 from the punish publisher, and $100,000 from her former lawyer. Interesting. Yeah. So Karen McCoy died in 2020, and in 2021, her and Richard McCoy's children, Richard III, or Richard Jr. Jr., if you prefer, <laughs> and Chante, yeah. I am not believe that's how her name is pronounced, who we think are in their mid-50s by now. They were born around late 60s, early to mid, well, early 70s, because he was imprisoned in 72. Um, they took part in a documentary where they admit that their father was D.B. Cooper and that their mother was involved in both the McCoy and Cooper hijackings. Now, according to Wikipedia, because we can't actually find this documentary anywhere, <laughs> like, like it's just, like, this is literally on the Wikipedia page for uh, Richard McCoy and the name of the documentary isn't even mm. there. Oh, it's documentary. Just, they took part in this documentary involving... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the journalist off the top of my head, but yeah. Like the name of it's not even there. Yeah. Um but yeah. So according to Wikipedia page, there is evidence of a cover up and it also includes in this documentary an interview with Karen's sister Denise, where she admits that 
the sworn testimony she gave to the FBI in the 70s that the McCoys were home for Thanksgiving in 1971, you know, the credible evidence that he was in Utah is actually false. And that in reality, they were gone for three or four days during Thanksgiving week and that she babysat her niece and nephew for them. Hmm. And that is the story of D.B. Cooper and a very brief look at some of the potential suspects. Oh, boy. Thoughts? Feelings? Time? <laughs> I love this case. Um, it just, like, it, it's it's another one of those that your brain can go off in a million different directions on because there's so hmm. little information, really, that's been found over the last... 45 years mm. well, it's 50, 50 years, years yeah, now true. 50 years last Thanksgiving yeah, that's right. um, but yeah so one of the things that always I always think about in this case also is the parachutes so mm -hmm. he requested four parachutes he got four parachutes but at least one of them was an instructor unit. And it was actually sewn shut. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the ones yeah. he jumped with. So Oops. I always kind of wonder, like, but also if he was familiar with... So that's the question. Like, if he was he familiar with parachutes? Because if he was, he wouldn't have worn that one to jump. He maybe mm. just took it with him. Or was he not familiar with jumping out of a plane and maybe he put that one on and when he went to pull the ripcord, fuck all happened and he plummeted yeah. to his death. I don't know. Well, that that's interesting as well because they, like, they revised the profile originally. They thought he was someone who yeah. knew about, like had experience with parachuting and with skydiving, but then... After a few years, they're like, maybe yeah. not. So, I don't know. It's, like, really, it's tricky. It's, like, you know, and it's also, I feel like, one of those things where, like, the the second you read about a different suspect, you're like, oh, no, yeah, that could be the guy. Like, because they're so, mm. it's just, you're, you're, you know, you're grasping at straws, really. Yeah. Yeah, and and like the the smoking and the bourbon is is like cited as being like oh well he was also a smoker and a bourbon drinker so it could be him. It's like if if you're using that like you say that was like every man in America in the seventies. Yeah. Like if that's if that's part of your profiling, of course you're going to come up with thousands of of suspects. Yeah. Um, speaking of, so we didn't put this in the main script, but. On uh, the Wikipedia page on the list of suspects, our old friend John List is mentioned as a potential suspect. Oh, yeah. Now, you may remember, is it last year? Maybe even the year before, we did an episode on the List family murders. And John, so John List murdered his entire family and was on the run for 20 years? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe a little I can't more. The details. 
Um, but a forensic sculptor came up with this bust of how he like how they believed he would age, and it was shown on like America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries or something, one of those kind of shows. And he was found quite quickly after that, and the the bust was exactly like you would have thought he was looking at him when he was making it's that incredible. bust. This forensic sculptor, it, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you haven't listened to that, go back listen to it. It's like episode thirty something, I want to say. Is it? I didn't realize Maybe it was that it early. Was later, but it's, um, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. Um, but yeah, John List was was a potential suspect. What's also interesting about List is that he disappeared in early November 1971. So I, I just looked it up. He mm. disappeared after murdering his entire family on um, November 9th. So he, one of the reasons why he came up was because uh, people were already looking for him. And so people are like, mm. well, maybe he killed his whole family and then jumped out of a plane in Seattle. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't if you if you're on the run, you can't use like the like federal banks or anything. Yeah. So good way to get some money. But I don't think it was. No, him. I and he ha he even said after he was captured, he's like, that's not me. So no, but it is quite interesting that that there's that connection one of the other suspects that like i hadn't actually heard of until last week <laughs> um that i feel like is more recent is sheridan peterson who died, mm -hmm. last, died year. last year yeah. um and so he served in the Marine Corps during World War II, worked at a as a technical editor at Boeing, um, and was a smoke jumper, and loved skydiving. And mm. at one point, he said that the FBI like had good reason to suspect him. Um, oh. So yeah, that's another interesting one. Yeah. Well, like you said, your brain can go off in every direction looking at this yeah. case. And I just feel like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm so impressionable on this case yeah. because I just want to know who it was. And I don't think we're mm -hmm. ever going to know. I, I don't think we will. Because especially if he was in his 40s, mm -hmm. he's going to be in his 90s mm -hmm. now. Yeah, so like Sheridan so, Peterson was ninety four when he died last year. Yeah, um, Richard Raxwell was in his seventies. He died a couple of years yeah. ago. You know, McCoy's widow died a couple of years ago, but he would have been, I believe, in his seventies or eight in his eighties, yeah. maybe. Um, by now, so I don't think we will ever know no. who it was. Um, but it's really interesting because this is the only unsolved air piracy case in the world in the history of commercial aviation. That is really interesting. Every other case has been solved in one way or another. Yeah. 
And um, so Florence Schaffner, one of the flight attendants, she spoke on Unsolved Mysteries, and I think she's spoken to other media outlets over the years. But Tina Mucklow has remained very private, very much removed from Mm -hmm. the media uh, until this year when she's finally spoken out about it and she gave an interview to The Independent, which we've linked in the show notes. Um, And there's a new film being made called Nod If You Understand. Mm -hmm. And it took filmmakers quite a long time to actually speak to her because she was like, I have no interest. I don't care. I don't want, you know, I've moved on with my life and be like, no, we want to tell your story, not his. We don't, we don't want to to speculate on who he is we want to tell your yeah. story um so that's gonna start production soon oh, i believe excited to see that um but she talks in this interview about how people like people still 50 years later write to her like, she was 22 oh, when God. this happened and like she had the chance to run as well like because she was sent to get the parachutes and the money mm-hmm. she could have run she could have stayed on the tarmac she could she didn't have to get back on that plane what she did and people still write to her being like oh i think it's this guy and it's like you you fucking don't do that that's not cool and she talks she talks herself in this interview about like how people have made him into a folk hero he's a domestic terrorist who threatened to kill 41 people and that is who this man is extorted hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah and I think that's the danger in these very long unsolved cases. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That they build up this kind of folk hero and this myth, like this mythos around them. So yeah, I, I do wonder if, um, because nobody was killed or injured in this whole incident, mm. if that has helped sort of elevate him out of this like criminal yeah thing into a like yeah a folk hero well he stuck it to the man he he stole this money and disappeared into the wind and yeah and it's like we have no idea if that bomb was real or not nobody knows like if that bomb was real and the slightest thing went wrong like 41 people including himself would have been killed I think what's also really interesting about this case is that there's no real clear motive um, Mm. because a lot of the hijackings, and there were a lot of them at this time. Oh, yeah. um, They were. They were political. They were like, well, take me to Cuba, you know, take me to this this yeah. place like or i mean there's even a, a page on wikipedia for and it's describes take me to take me to cuba political yeah. dissidents whereas this one like he didn't say well he said you know he wanted to go to mexico city mm-hmm. but he clearly like that was just something to say to get them to to fly right because he bailed out yeah. over Oregon. So um, did he do it just to stick yeah. it to the airline, to to do it because to prove that he could? Like, uh, it's, you know? 
it's confusing. And I think that's why it's stuck yeah. for so long. Yeah, people can ascribe their own yeah. meanings and values to it. It's kind of like a blank slate, like, which does obfuscate the yeah. the fact that like it's really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, and like I I, I find it a very in, like it is a very interesting case, and I do find the whole like air piracy hijacking of the like fifties, sixties, seventies quite interesting because. Like we've grown up in a world of very, very heavily regulated air yeah. travel. Um and like the idea is so foreign to just be able to I mean like now you have to fill in API like three days before you fly for most places, the advanced oh, passenger yeah, yeah. information. Yeah. Like it's actually quite difficult to walk up to an airport and get a flight now. Like you used to be able to walk into an airport or a travel Buy agency. A the day before and be like just give me your cheapest package wherever. to yeah. anywhere like the med or long haul or wherever like that has become more difficult yeah. as well so i think i find it very interesting that how long this kind of hijacking and air piracy went on with such frequency it went on for going on for 30 years like 50 60 yeah. and into the 70s but it's uh, this case is actually like pinpointed as the beginning of super heavily regulated air travel. Yeah. So I find it interesting that this was the like the straw that broke yeah. the camel's back in terms of yeah. regulation and security because it was it was just so prolific throughout the fifties and sixties yeah. that it got to to this case is is generally pinpointed. As being the one. I think that probably it was just high profile enough and probably yeah. the FBI and, and the US government was kind of embarrassed by it and was like, yeah, yeah, they couldn't find him. We should do something about this. Yeah. So. Final question. Do you think he actually survived? Oh. <sighs> It all comes down to those parachutes. Also, mm -hmm. the money that was found. Because that's $6,000 just in that river, which makes me think. Yeah. Either he lost the money somewhere, like in the jump. Mm. And yeah. it it went in the water and then the rest of it got carried out or it went you know, everywhere as paper is wont mm. to do. <laughs> um, yeah. And maybe he survived. But I just, I feel like he would have been caught if he had survived. Because mm. you could never use that money. No, but it's all... But it's never been found apart from that six thousand yeah. dollars. So there's still a hundred and ninety-four thousand dollars. That's a and it was all in twenty, all in twenties. There's a lot of twenty dollar bills. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. So because I I like the the McCoy mm -hmm. theory, which obviously for that to to have happened, he yeah. has to have survived. 
So I think he probably buried it thinking, okay, if we bury it and we come back uh-huh. to it later, obviously he's lost some yeah. of it somewhere along the line. But I think he maybe buried it and possibly buried it in different bits, not like 195,000 <laughs> yeah, altogether. Yeah. So that's why some of it's, you know, yeah. got lost. But then he then got arrested five Never months later. Never went back for it. And then died in a yeah. shootout. Uh, or FBI shootout. So he's never been able to go back and retrieve that Unless money. his wife did, if she was supposedly involved. But yeah, that that then depends how, like, to what extent she was really yeah. involved in. But yeah, so I think that's possible that it was buried because that's how a lot of people get caught in like really big robberies is they start yeah. flashing the cash. Like we talked about the Lufthansa heist, the yeah, pink yeah. Cadillac. <laughs> like you, you need to keep like a low profile for yeah. a while. What? I guess. And potentially even take the money, like go on holiday or fly abroad, take the money out of the country and exchange yeah. it abroad. Because there wasn't the same kind of checks on exchanging currency as there is now. Because they did like the money laundering laws we have now weren't around in yeah, the seventies. And also, so you could take it out of the country, exchange it, and then go fly and live somewhere on a tropical yeah. island where nobody knows you. And like, so if say he wanted to go to Mexico, like if he if he survived the jump, maintained control over the money. And made it to Mexico by other <laughs> means, you know, by mm. getting on a train, get you know, whatever. Then, yeah, mm. I mean, he could potentially just take the cash and and slowly, bit by bit, you know, twenty dollar bill by twenty dollar yeah. bill, exchange it for whatever currency wherever he was. And I think that's the the key yeah, too. Like and- it would have to be. You couldn't just go up to like Banco Mexico, which is a real thing. Uh, oh, that's yeah. That's not just a, a, a an American racist mm. adding an El oh. Banco de Mexico. <laughs> um, but like, you couldn't just rock up and be like, "Here's my two hundred thousand or one hundred ninety six thousand mm. dollars. Please exchange it." Mm-hmm. But like, if he was just exchanging money with local merchants well that's the thing because some places are happy to to take uh us dollars to take british pounds to even to take euros in some places i don't know like maybe canadian or australian dollars are the same as well but yeah in in some countries where they have a lot of of tourists from that country they're quite happy to exchange like informally yeah, exchange totally. uh currency that's not legal yeah. tender yeah so i don't know so like yeah ah but this this is the thing where it's like your mind can go off in yeah. a thousand directions and also like i guess if you favor any particular suspect you have to believe that they survived yeah they survived so yeah um, because nobody just van- vanished yeah, on that no, day. That we know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think the money was probably like, if if he survived, whether it was McCoy or Christensen or someone else, I think the money is buried somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
you know, with an aim to going back to it at some point when the yeah. heat is off, yeah. so to speak. And like, if it was McCoy, obviously that didn't happen because less than six months later, he did the same thing yeah. but got arrested. Was the the United so. Airlines had a higher money ask? Yeah, yeah, that was half a million. Like, uh, yeah, escalating. I could see that. Like he's gotten away with mm. it. Yeah, he's got away with it using a fake bomb. So, or whether it was fake or real, because if it was real, like how just it was to turn yeah. up somewhere. Like that's what you. That's what you would think, right? That's what. But like you say, that's what we forget about. Like he somehow kept a grip yeah. on his briefcase. Yeah, right. With a bomb, but he. The United Airlines was a fa- a paperweight looking like a hand grenade and an yeah. unloaded gun. So, if McCoy is DB or was DB Cooper, it's possible that the yeah. bomb wasn't yeah. real as well. So you know, but yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> once again, we have we solved didn't nothing. Solve. The DB Cooper case. The greatest no. unsolved case in FBI history. I'm <laughs> shocked. Yeah, I mean, I know I'm really disappointed in us. I thought we could do it when the feds I really couldn't. In the, in, oh God, this has been like two hours long. <laughs> has it? Oh, fuck. Crap. <laughs> oh, you're getting a really hey. long episode, guys. Hope you're still with us. Some of that will we can cut out some of that, but like it is. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I I'm quite happy with this to be a longer episode than we've been doing lately because mm-hmm. there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of yeah stuff in here. Um, mm. but yeah. So I would really like to hear everyone else's favorite suspects or preferred theories yeah. of what happened after he jumped out of the plane. Um, this is also another one of those, sorry to backtrack, but like, um, where like he just disappeared and nobody was watching at the time. It's another Alfred Lowenstein where like, he's just, he's out the back of the plane, but everyone else is looking in the other direction. So like, what if there was an inside man on, in the, the flight crew and but I don't know where he would have been. So never mind. Don't listen to me. <laughs> okay, you can cut this bit out. No, I'm going to leave it in. Oh, okay. But like... But yeah, it is interesting. Like, he jumped when no one was looking. Yeah. So like, they think that he jumped at this time. I don't know. Yeah. Ah, I can't stop. Like, now that we've started this, I can't turn it off. Okay, anyway, right. tell us your theories. Yeah. Tell us your preferred suspects. Tell us if you are Dan Cooper. Yeah. Dan, if you're listening. So yeah, let us know. Uh and and here we go, guys. You're probably used to hearing this by now. Should probably rewrite this at some point. Yeah, we should. But I mean we can swap it around. I'll go if you want. We'll do each other. Sure. Sure. So, if you like the show, and why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice if they allow, especially Apple Podcasts, because that helps us reach more people. 
And subscribe so you never miss a new episode, because why would you want to miss this? Right? I know. And if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, we have a selection of awesome products with cool designs. You can get those at the link in our show notes on our website or at just going straight to squaremileofmurder.store, I think. Yes. I should know the link. (laughs) (laughs) You've heard me say it enough times. Yeah, but you know, sometimes we just tune out when we get to this bit. So do I, honestly. And dear God, listeners, I hope you do too. (laughs) But (laughs) if you haven't and you are here and you are listening and for whatever godforsaken reason uh, you might like to help us cover the cost of making this show and help us invest in the future of the podcast, there is a way for you to do that by joining our Patreon page. Tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early. A shout-out on the show after you join. Priority case requests. And a lifetime discount on merch. Um, And that's all for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more cool stuff, including bonus episodes, some fun little goodies in the mail. Um, Sometimes we release unedited versions of our episodes we've been doing that a little bit more recently yeah i think we should do that more often yeah she says as though she has anything to do with that (laughs) (laughs) as though she's the one that edits Mm, yeah no yeah so if if the parts of this podcast that you like most are the parts where we go off track and you'd like to hear more unedited episodes which include two pound a month it'll cost you two pounds a month but we have that yeah so we do if if that's something that interests you you can check all of that out at patreon.com slash square mile of murder links where you would expect to find them that's and, it uh, we will be back next week uh we'll see you then yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks. If you're still here. Dear God, go home. <laughs> go home, everyone. Where do you think they are? They're probably all home. You can't really listen to this stuff in the office. Well, you can if you're me. I used to. Yeah. But I used to have an office to myself. I mean, okay, don't go home. Just stop doing the dishes. Yeah. Take Just a break. Go do, go do something else for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Goodbye. Bye.